Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir, where every week we talk to someone who set their sights on a problem and are working to change it. Over the past few weeks, as part of our rebuilding series, we've connected with leaders from across education, media, and hospitality to learn how they're reimagining and redesigning their industries to make sure that everyone feels a sense of belonging. On today's podcast, we welcome our guests, Greg and Sabrina Collier. This husband and wife team are leading the culinary scene in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they've opened several restaurants, including Leah and Louise. Leah and Louise opened in 2020 during a pandemic and has already been named by Esquire magazine as one of the best restaurants in the country. That's no small feat. They're also leaders in the effort to bring more black chefs and entrepreneurs into hospitality. And they're the founders of the Bay Haven Food and Wine Festival, a three-day celebration of black foodways. My colleague, Pamela Taylor, who will be joining us on today's podcast, attended the inaugural event in October of 2021. And Share Our Strengths No Kid Hungry campaign was one of the nonprofits that benefited from the festival. We'll be right back after this. Here now is our conversation with culinary leaders, Greg and Sabrina Collier. I'm joined today uh, by my colleague, Pamela Taylor. And Pamela, we're getting to do more and more of these together, which has really been fun. I love having you with me on the podcast. So thanks for doing this. I enjoy it myself. Thank you, Billy. Happy to be here. Uh, and of course, the special guests that we have today are Sabrina and Greg Collier. So um, without anything further, let me just say welcome, Sabrina and Greg. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. Okay. And um, I'm glad you're with us. We want to talk about so many things here. But uh, first, I just want to hear a little bit more about uh, Leah and Louise. I was saying it's got to be no small task to start and open a restaurant during the pandemic, uh, let alone have it be widely considered one of the best restaurants of 2020. Um, and, you know, let's talk about that. But let's go back even farther to just talk about, for both of you, the love of culinary, where did it come from? How far back did it go? Was this something uh, a lot of folks say they were, you know, uh, with grandma in the kitchen, and that's where they learned to love food? What was it in your case? So my story is it's not uh, weird in that way. But I, um, I went to I went to, you know, high school regular, I had pretty good grades. Um, got an academic scholarship to uh, UT Knox and quickly flunked out. Uh, I uh, got sent back home to Memphis. I was at the University of Memphis, was there for a little while, was partying too much and kind of flunked out there. And I was in like a real bad place. And one of my friends so he said, uh, hey, you want a job? And I was like, he, his dad owned a hot wing spot. And I was like, yeah, of course I want a job. Do I get to eat free? He was like, yeah, you get to eat free. You get paid all that stuff. So uh, it was like kind of the perfect situation <laughs> for me. And that's how I got into the industry. Like later on in life, I kind of found out, you know, kind of reconnecting with my aunts and stuff that I was in the kitchen with my granny when I was younger. Or I was in the garden with her when I was younger. I don't really recall any of these things, but all my family kind of tells me that's how it was. So um, I definitely think it's ingrained in who I am, but I kind of rediscovered the kitchen later on in life. And for me, um, on the other side of that, I never like had a, a joy for cooking, but I liked the service aspect. Um, in college, I was a biology chemistry major, but I was always waiting tables. That was like my, that was going to be my side gig. Well, I got through college and well, I was going to be this pharmacist. I was like, okay, I'll just wait tables. And I was really good at it. And I actually um, met Greg at the hot wing spot because I was a customer. Um, <laughs> and so 
Um, I was waiting tables at downtown Bill Street in Memphis, you know, 1920, making good money. Um, I was attracted to like how fast the money was. But I also outside of that, I liked uh, being able you can change people's mood really fast with food. It's, it's almost crazy to see how people come in hangry or whatever. You give them something good to eat and they're like your best customer. And so I think over time I got attracted to that aspect of. Um, the culinary side, because I never wanted to be in the back of the house, but I loved interacting with people. And I think that's what we could. That's where Greg and I connected because he had the backside covered and I had the front side and we never wanted to step over either one of, you know, we didn't want to step on one another. So I think that's where we work well. Well, you can imagine for a hunger organization, Sabrina, to hear you talk about how you can completely change people's moods with food. And, you know, you have the experience of like literally right before your eyes, you're standing, you know, at a table and seeing people's attitudes, their whole being change because they've been able to they've been able to eat. And of course, we think about that in the, you know, even more uh, serious way of kids who don't have access, you know, perhaps to enough food at all. So for you to be able to bear witness to that is is pretty powerful. And it sounds like you both, you know, both, I'm sure, worked your tails off over the last number of years, but also found that you had a real talent for what you're doing. You know, that there must have been a, you know, so as we were talking about with Greg a minute ago, it must have been like this latent talent there for food. And in your case, for hospitality that just started to blossom. It was for me, it became, un it just became undeniable. You know how you're for us. And we talk about this all the time. Food for a lot of younger people, food and service industry is like a transient career. So it's really not like most people get out. When I was growing up, you wanted to have like a STEM career. You either a doctor, lawyer, scientist, like that was like respected. You know, your parents always push you to that. No one really said, Hey, you know, you could open a restaurant or, you know, do, you know, hospitality. And so for us, it was, making the decision like we're really good at this and we like doing this so when we decided to open the restaurant it was you know let's do this because we we, we were going those other paths but we didn't really you know we didn't like it and everybody has to eat <laughs> everybody I don't care who you are and so we I think for me that's how it just organically happened and for Greg he can tell you um well like I um for me it was when I um when I decided that I wanted to go to culinary school I went to Arizona because I wanted to be I needed to get out of Memphis to find out who I was outside of where I grew up, how I was raised and all those things. So I went to Arizona and I was by myself. And while I was in Arizona, I kind of, you know, started, you know, reading the secret um, conversations with God, just different, like different books that kind of talked about deliberate intent and, and focus. And once I realized that for me, the, the, the focus was becoming a great chef. I think I kind of like just double down on it, you know, constantly. And then um, I think it's very important. Like my wife, my wife's belief in me kind of like doubles down on that. So when I first moved to Arizona, we weren't together, but kind of once she decided, hey, we were going to do this thing and we were going to try to be together. And she came down. I got better. Um, same thing when we got married. I got better. So I was I was fortunate that I have a partner who. Uh, actually helps me physically. You know, she's the other half of the restaurant, but also from a um, spiritual perspective, just put something in me that, you know, just makes me better at what I'm doing. So, um, you know, I'm lucky in that way. Just so I can fantasize for a minute, if Pamela and I were lucky enough to be at Leah and Louise today, what would you be telling us we've got to eat? I don't know. So I'll tell you what's always on the menu, 
because some of the things that are my favorites, we change the menu like every two months. Um, so I would say Mud Island, which is our blackened catfish over rice grits. Um, the Leah's cabbage, which is my um, sister's, well, it's my version of my sister's smothered cabbage. And um, the Arthur Lou, which is the tang tart with a meringue. It's kind of like a lemon icebox pie, except instead of lemon pie, we make a tang pie with um, actual tang powder. So those are the three that will always be on the menu. And um, and then chicken skins. So if it, four things that will always be on the menu are that, is that. So if you had to eat it, it would be that. And oh, they're man. the most popular. And all those food items, um, I wanted to add, they're an ode to uh, Arthur Lewis. His, um, that's Louise. Um, her real name was um, uh, Arthur Lou. That's an ode to her because she used to drink Tang every morning um, and oatmeal cookies. And so that was the that's what came together of the Tang Tart Pie. And Leah, his late baby sister, Leah, um, she made cabbage. Her cabbage was better than Greg's, but, you know, he he did his best. And I think sure. he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pamela, what do you think? Are we in for a road trip? Oh, 100%. In fact, while I was down there, someone did clue, clue me in on the uh, chicken skin. So I can attest it is life changing. It sounds amazing. That was that was the one that really my ears perked up when I heard chicken skins. Okay, let's let's talk about some of the other work you're doing. It feels to me like there's been this kind of progression from uh, your own experience to soul food sessions to now Bay, Bay Haven Food and Wine Festival. Um, would love to hear and just engage you on you know when you first felt that. Um, okay, a successful restaurant is not enough for us. We have an opportunity to actually be changing society in some pretty powerful ways. That, that's obviously a kind of a daunting thought, but you're, you're doing that. And so when did you decide that we're, you know, we're, we're not only going to have this restaurant, but we're going to leverage our skills and experiences to help others in our community? I, don't know, I think um, I never wanted to just have one restaurant personally. Um, I wanted to do breakfast and the original restaurant was not supposed to be a breakfast restaurant, by the way, the original restaurant thought was Leah and Louise light. Like I wanted to do a lot of local sourcing and a lot of menu changing and a lot of different things. So I wanted to do that up front versus, uh, trying to figure it out and do it on the back end. So, um, I always wanted to do multiple restaurants. I think the time for me when I recognized that we were doing more than just opening great restaurants was when we did, after we did Soul Food Sessions, from there, we started to see younger chefs just reach out. Um, and we, and I was like, I was like, man, when did, we're like, what's going on? Like, why are people reaching out to us? And then we, um, the next, the next dinner we did, the first dinner we did, we uh, donated the funds to, uh, a local culinary program that's like a um, second chance program, so so to speak, uh, for older, for you know adults or whatever. But um, the next one, we actually uh, brought students in to help. And when we brought students in to help, um, we kind of saw how much that was missing. Like I never, we never had mentors here to look up to. Now I have, you know, Joe Randall is in Georgia, Ty Richards is in Georgia, Keith Rhodes and uh, Ricky Moore, both in North Carolina. So I had, you know, Joe Randall and Joe Randall and Ty Richards in Atlanta. And Joe Randall is one of the least mentioned black chefs. And he probably should be, he he should be mentioned with Leah Chase and Edna Lewis. And he's definitely one of um, the most important people in, in my culinary life. But I didn't have these people in Charlotte to look to. And when I found, we found younger black chefs looking, up, looking to us and, and reaching out to us, it was like, oh, 
So it's not just about us as black chefs kind of doing our thing and letting people know who we were and that we can cook and how talented we were. It's really something else. So while we were doing the soul food sessions, we added students to be a part of it. Then we got to a point to where students actually did their own dishes. Then we worked with uh, Coca-Cola Consolidated in 2018, and they actually helped us build a scholarship for uh, you know culinary students while we were working with them. So I think it was a natural uh, progression because we just saw people who were like us when we were younger who didn't have us to look up to. So it was kind of an automatic thing. And Greg, before I turn this over to Pamela to talk about Bayhaven, uh, just for folks who don't know, say a little bit more about what Soul Food Sessions is. So Soul Food Sessions started as um, a, a collaboration between five black chefs and my wife as the front of the house person, just to highlight African-American chefs in Charlotte, specifically saying, because we were all doing food trucks, um, breakfast. So the original goal was just to highlight our skill set and our talent, because at the time, all the chefs on the magazines, all the chefs that were featured were white chefs um, in spades. So we wanted to say, why are they not talking about us? Is it because we're doing breakfast? Is it because we're on food trucks? So that's how it started. And it evolved to highlighting more chefs. Then it evolved to working with students. And it evolved to highlighting chefs in different places. So and I think Soul Food Sessions evolved into Bayhaven Food and Wine, so much so that our, our last Soul Food Sessions event, Sabrina wanted to set up kind of like a really small festival so she can see the logistics of what eight different chefs cooking dishes looked like. And then obviously with Bayhaven, we had to go from eight to 60 different chefs. So, Pamela, get us into Bayhaven. I want to hear all about it. Yeah. So before I go into Bayhaven, I, I want to just stay here for one moment because the work that we do at Share Our Strength and, and somewhat through our No Kid Hungry campaign is about understanding the fact that people and children, families face hunger because they're impoverished. And poverty comes from, you know, underemployment, lack of employment, lack of, um, you know, a minimum, a livable minimum wage. And what you all have done and described in the past few minutes is such a big part of where we as an organization is trying to go. In other words, we want young Black children and young children, regardless of race, to know that culinary skills, culinary arts, culinary as a profession is means to an end. It is, you know, we start waiting tables, we start, you know, doing dishes, all of those things. But what you two have done, and so many other Black chefs that you've been talking about, is to show how this is a career path that leads to success, that can lift families and communities out of poverty into a career that is fruitful. And like you said at the beginning, Sabrina, that can change people's mood just by putting some food on the table. This is something that we want to make sure kids that are in schools right now trying to figure out you know, where do they go? How do they break this cycle of generational poverty? And this story that you all are telling is such a beautiful way for folks to say, you don't have to go to college and do your four-year degree and become a pharmacist. Here's another opportunity. Here's another path. So 
that's one of the reasons why I was just so excited about Bay Haven um, because it was live and in living color. It celebrated history. It celebrated the inspiration of um, just what can be and what is happening. So let's shift over to talk a little bit more about Bay Haven. I will just tell you from my perspective, it was such a moment of pride and joy to see this event, to see Friday afternoon, this community in Charlotte where, you know, I grew up in Charlotte. So I remember North End and I remember what it looked like. And I was like, look what they've done here. And to see kids coming and walking around the festival Friday afternoon with their families and seeing, you know, Black entrepreneurs with their products. I still, I've got um, shea butter. I've got um, like I said, spices, I've got all kinds of things, but it was such a moment of pride to see this happen. And then Friday evening, the dinners and to talk about Josephine Baker and Cotton Club and all of this history. Share with us a little bit, Sabrina, because I know this was um, somewhat of your brainchild, you and Greg. Talk to us about why this was so important for you all to not only do it but do it at the north end of Charlotte and do it with so many fabulous black talent that you brought together. Um, for me, it was, well, Greg and I talk about natural progression a lot. So during our journeys in this culinary world, we've gotten to participate in a lot of amazing festivals um, in Atlanta, Charleston, things like that. We've gotten to participate in a lot of those. And what we noticed a lot of the times was we're going to cities that are heavily black populated. Um, it would be, you know, Charleston, Atlanta, all these other places, but you didn't really see um, a lot of black talent there. And I knew they were there. I knew it was black chefs there. I knew it was like black uh, like mixologists and things like that. But I just didn't see us represented there. Um, maybe a handful of us, but never like to the capacity of what the demographic of the area was. And so uh, for me, I think the turning point was once we did our soul food sessions, I just wanted to test out the last soul food sessions that we did was like festival format, small festival format, probably like, you know, six or seven stalls, just local people, um, two food trucks. I just wanted to see how um, how that worked out because it's so much work to put a festival together. It's nothing you can just decide to do. So this was something that I had to go through, take a lot of time with, and then, you know, plan. So when I told Rachel, hey, I want to do a Black Food and Wine Festival, uh, she was like, when? I was like, yeah, let's do it in spring. She was like, absolutely not. <laughs> we do not. <laughs> From October to, she was like, we have, we do not have time to, you know, she's like, this has to be like next fall. And so once we decided it would be next fall, um, we started getting on the planning and I just wanted to do it because I was tired of having to like pick out the three black people at this festival that probably had, you know, 60 or 70, um, it'll have 60, 70 talents, but I'll see like three black talents. And, you know, it just wasn't, I was like, okay, I'm not going to keep, um, asking for representation even locally for the food and wine festivals here that they had. Um, I, you know, I'll just create my own. I'm just one of those people, you know, if, you know, I feel like we're not being represented enough and our talents not represented enough, then I'll just, you know, create it myself if that's in my wheelhouse. Um, I grew up, we grew up in Memphis. We grew up where they would have Greek festivals and Italian festivals. And it was always so fun to go to because everybody would go, but you would just have a whole street full of just like 
Italian chefs, culinarians, like everybody just doing their culture's food. And I always wanted to do that anyway. So this was just something that was just perfect to go into. Um, I didn't think I would be the one creating it, um, but I'm glad I did. Uh, so that was just, you know, that was the natural progression of going into the food at food festival world. I didn't plan on this 10 years ago when we opened our restaurant, but, you know, I just think it was just, it was one of my, it was something I was really passionate about. I'm, I'm not the chef. I get the hospitality side and I just think this was like another branch on my hospitality tree. One thing, Billy, let me jump in before I know you've got a question, but I just want to comment because Greg touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation. You know, I sat next to uh, Rachel Friday night at the dinner who handles all of your public relations. And she and I were talking about the media coverage that you all got. I mean, Southern Living, The Rob Report, Bon Appetit. These These are the magazines that Greg said, you know, always had white folks on the cover. You all literally did your inaugural event and broke into some of the most premier hospitality, food, culture, magazines that this country has known. What was that like? What was it like to see your your vision come to life on the pages of magazines that typically did not talk about our world, did not talk about our food, our culture? What did that mean? Let me, hold on. Let me, so, so here's the thing. Um, one of the things that, um, my wife should be represented way more because, and this is something we've had conversations about for years. Um, from the beginning, I was like, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get what I need to get off off. Like I'm a, my name is gonna get out there. People are always going to say chef, 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 chef. But I think it's important for, um, a black woman, especially someone who's not just a front of the house person, but a business owner, um, to be in the mm-hmm. forefront. So for me, I think is she should have been in the in the in these magazines before me, to be honest, because she's more than an anomaly than I am. Even though black chefs are mm-hmm. hard to come by, so I expect it. Um, am I happy that Garden Gun and Rob Report and all these things reached out? Uh, absolutely. It was phenomenal to see, but I expect it because we both put in the work and what we're doing is, is I, I won't say groundbreaking, but it's, it hasn't been seen before in this way. So I feel like they should always be there. I feel like they should always be asking us what we're doing next because we're doing stuff that's important for um, Black culture, you know, in specific, but as a whole, Charlotte culinary community, North North Carolina culinary community, we're doing this in, in the South. I've gotten texts and emails from right. chefs in New York and Philly and said, bro, you know y'all doing this in the South, right? And it's like, yeah, we from the South. Of course we're doing it in the South. They're like, nah, you're doing this in the South. You're doing this in the South, and the South is still the South <laughs> in context for a lot of people. So I'm super happy that, that these things happen, but I feel like they should have always been happening. And I definitely feel like they should, you know, be happening moving forward. Well, you are groundbreaking and, and, and you are the first of many. And that's that we have to start somewhere. And I'm so proud that we um, are talking to you all about just what you've started and what so much more is to come. So, Billy, let me turn it back to you. Well, yeah, let's I'll just, you know, kind of tee off of what you just said, panel, in terms of groundbreaking and uh, Greg's term being an, both of them being kind of an anomaly. Uh, and although this may be obvious to you, you've lived it. Uh, 
share for our listeners, you know, what are some of the obstacles to black ownership in culinary and to, you know, black economic empowerment? Uh, I know you live this and breathe this, but uh, for those who are trying to get a better understanding, what should they know about why this has been so groundbreaking? For uh, for me on the hospitality side, I, I always say this example. If you go into your higher fine in uh, a higher, you know, higher in fine dining restaurants, you I could almost bet money you won't see uh, a black woman as far as one of your managers or GMs. I can I would I think I would bet money and win every time. It's just not on the higher end. Uh, we're usually not promoted into those management levels, uh, let alone a, a GM. I, every place I've worked, whether it was local or a chain, um, never had a, a black black never had a black woman GM. I've had one black male GM, and that was a darting company. Other than that, never you know a black woman. And so for me, it's them seeing that even if I'm the only one, um, even though in this, in this journey, I had to create my own restaurant <laughs> in order to be the, the, the GM. And so that's something else I would like people to think about. Like I had to create my own restaurant to even be given the opportunity to manage, let alone GM. And then, you know, it had to be something I did from within. Um, so I think that's just the perspective of, you know, for one, you don't see a lot of uh, women, uh, women GMs. You just, it's, it's rare. And it's even more rare when you start narrowing it down to black women. And so I think that's very important for me. If I do nothing else and contribute nothing else to the hospitality industry, that there was a black woman that was on the spectrum of higher end dining and hospitality um, that had that position. And for Greg. I, um, I think, and I've been talking a lot more about this recently we've the most funding we've ever got for a business was caused by a global pandemic as a black owned business the the amount of funding that we got because of that struggle was the most that we've ever gotten this is after james beard noms this is after um so many different things you got uh white men white male chefs that are that that can open a restaurant get funding destroy the restaurant, go, go a city away. Like you got, you go to LA, then you go to San Diego, then you go to Sacramento, then you go to San Francisco and you got chefs who have investors and they keep ruining restaurants and keep ruining people's, um, you know, lives and how, how they like the industry. And they keep getting investors because, but I don't know what the because is. We got investors for Lee and Luis and we really had like our friends, um, and people who have just been supporting us gave us small investments, but, there's never been a $2 million check cut to open the restaurant of our dream. There's never been a, um, you know, a, a venture capitalist come and say, hey, what I think we should do a restaurant group. All these things have been done by extremely hard work. Her parents gave us a $20,000 loan to open our first restaurant. Um, so, like, we don't, we've never, ever had the capital investment that a lot of other restaurants have. Yeah, we were now, <laughs> Camp North End is the first time that we've had um, this 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 intense um, investment. They invested in the building. They invested in uh, the FF&E because they believed in us. And now after, you know, successfully in Louise and what we've done there, they're believing in us again and they're investing in Behavior Restaurant Group. Um, and that's the thing. They're developers, so they have a win in this and it's a symbiotic relationship. And we still are looking for, we're not looking for, we're still 
want capital investors. We still want people to come in and partner with us. It just doesn't happen in the same way that a lot of other chefs who, quite frankly, with, you know, not half of the acclaim and, you know, representation that we get, get. So I think if I could pick a thing, a lot, everything is important. Uh, representation is important. Um, you know, being seen is important. Funding is uh, important. But if there's a thing, funding is the most important thing. If we had half the opportunities the other chefs had, you would see more different types of restaurants. You would see, uh, you know, uh, an, an Asian restaurant ran by a black chef. You would see all these restaurants because we love food and it's not just always Southern food. Southern food is my thing, but it might not be the next black chef's thing. So, mm -hmm. And we piggybacking off of what Greg said, um, it is like those things are needed. The representation is needed. But we if you think about like everything we've had to do, like as far as accolades and all those things, we do know chefs that haven't gotten half as many, you know, accolades and awards and they're able to get funding. It's just I think people are just more comfortable with, you know, I guess the quote unquote, you know, status quo of what they normally see. So they're more comfortable investing in those businesses as opposed to um, one of our black chefs who's really, he is enthralled in different types of Asian food and bow and like different. He just loves all everything about the food side of that culture. And so it would be, it's harder for people to even fathom. He could black chefs and culinarians, we get pigeonholed. We, we had a breakfast restaurant first. That was our first restaurant. The yolk was our first thing. And people would still be like, what is this? A soul food place? It's like called the yolk. It's, <laughs> it's an egg yolk. It's in all these things. It's clearly breakfast, but seeing black faces is the face behind it. It was like, it has to be soul food, you know? And so I think that that's beyond just the consumer because your, your consumer is still the same people that work in the banks. They're still the same people that sign the checks and authorize you to get funding. They have that same mindset. And so they can't fathom you doing anything high, high end dining. And it's not, you know, like macaroni. And so for us, we've had to fight that um, stereotype. It's not just for us because we have people that we love and know that do macaroni greens immaculate. That's what they do. They've been doing it for years. And so it's kind of it's kind of spitting on what they do to say that's what we're doing. That's not what we're doing. We're doing Southern food. We're doing it a different way. And then another black chef is doing it. You know, black people kind of get pigeonholed into a certain type of food um, that white chefs don't. They ask the white chef, what kind of food do you make? And they assume black uh, people and culinarians automatically make soul food like they would an, an Asian chef. They would assume he's doing something Asian. And so for us, it's fighting that stereotype by showing this is possible. You know, we have speakeasies, we have breakfast and brunch rest, uh, uh, restaurants, and we have Southern cuisine, higher end Southern cuisine. And so I think that's a fight that will be We'll continue to fight, and it's just you know, it's just something that that goes with the territory. But it'll be easier for the next generation of chefs that come behind us. Well, that's what, that's what I wanted to ask you because it sounds like there's unfortunately still such a long way to go. But at the same time, reason to be hopeful. Uh, you've surely inspired a lot of other people. You've given folks the sense that they can uh, overcome some of these obstacles, which at times you know seem insurmountable. But you've done it. Um, do, do you end up, um, and I think you do from the last thing you just said about the next generation, do you end up hopeful that we're, we're moving in the right direction? Um, definitely. I, I think the, the ability for us to be at a place to where we're going to open, um, you know, we'll have six restaurants by the end of this year is a clear moniker that, uh, a clear notifier that things are improving. Um. I, you know, and I can, you know, Pamela and, you know, any, anybody else uh, who's on the team um, 
who's black on the team can attest to these kind of thought processes of, you know, a black tax or a 400 year head start, just general things that in our community we think about to say, that's the, like this, those things are literal things that we have to fight through um, systematically. Um, systematic change, I think, is the toughest change, but us being able to have uh, five, uh, five, you know, six restaurants by the end of the year while being undercapitalized is a is still a win. Uh, us being able to work with our former pastry chef in a donut shop, um, our mixologist to become, you know, our lead beverage director and build his consulting company, and you know, hopefully other black chefs and um, you know, black front of the house uh, managers in these types of ways is awesome. It is amazing, but. I, I think change is happening. I think, um, you know, there's a there's an easy way to slide back into the normal because it's kind of like with the NFL coach thing. You can't argue that Kyle Shanahan, and I don't want to get too deep, you can't argue that Kyle Shanahan is a bad coach, but he might have got an opportunity that a black coach wouldn't have got. What would, if you give a, if you give a black chef the same opportunity that, uh, you know, maybe, a, you know, one of these other chefs who, get put into a situation where they have the best kitchen and they have the most money to pay the best sous chefs and they have the best equipment, what would a black chef do in that situation? So I think that that's the thing that we're kind of looking for to change. And hopefully, and I see, we see it in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. I hope we kind of can kind of create that. Like I hope, you know, when the chefs come work for us, um, that they, we can open a restaurant with them. And then once we open a restaurant with them, maybe uh, the goal is for them to mentor people. So, like I said, if we got six black chefs at six restaurants and they hire a black sous chef and everybody else could be whatever, right? Now you have 10, 12 black chefs who are at the top. So when the sous chefs are ready to do a thing, maybe we work with them to do the next thing. So I think it's um, a trickle-down effect, and it is definitely a trickle, not a not a stream or yeah. a river or a waterfall. But um, I, I, I do like the fact that I think the trickle is opening up a little bit, so. And I just wanted to add to um to that that I think at times when people hear black people say, "Hey, we want a like a black food and wine festival," it was almost jarring to people to hear black people say, "Hey, we're doing a black food and wine festival with black culinarians and black food." With that same um, response, really wasn't given to like Greek festival. We had an Armenian festival here. We have our t Italian festival. These are all over the world. The same response isn't given to that. It's almost like a "How dare you do that?" And I think uh, that's almost sometimes the mindset of like smaller, smaller minded people um, that can't fathom, hey, like Asian restaurants normally hire Asian people. It's, not, it's, it's beyond just the food. It's the culture. It's things that you put into the food, these nuances that aren't taught that, you know, that are respected. Same thing in Greek restaurants. Like it's, just, it's just like, you know, there are things that you can't teach because you're already brought up with them. Um, it's easier. It's culture. And so, white people do it too. It's, you know, they just can't say it. <laughs> they do it all the time. They just can't say it. So I think, um, when black people say it, it's very jarring for people to be like, yeah, we, we're trying to hire black culinarians and do black food and put black food on display. Um, cause it's like, you know, how dare you? And so I think that's something we'll, we'll always, you know, fight against, but we're okay being, you know, the forefront. We're okay taking it at this point. We're just like, you know, to hell with it greg yeah, and i just like we'll do it you know <laughs> my plan is uh, for me it's beyond that i want to be I, I looked up black restaurant groups and I, it's rare that you find like a, a black restaurant group um 
a big black restaurant group as far as, you know, having different locations in different cities, whether they're regional, um, like you have, like you have your Darden restaurant group and you have, um, whoever owns, uh, What's the restaurant group that you like a lot, Greg? Fox restaurant, Fox restaurant group. Like, Star restaurant. Yeah, you got Frank Chabelli here. So you have these people that have these things. It's just like we're just not able to see that within our own. And so, again, it's something we want to create um, as far as on our side with, with you know, black restaurant groups. Like Frank Chabelli does a great job with Italian concepts. And, like, that's his culture. Like, And, and I, I can say that. You can say whatever you want about him, but he's he's growing, expanding, and he's always in some way representing his culture, the Italian culture, in some way through food. Um, not every concept he has Italian, but he has a lot of those in there. And so I respect that, and I love to see that, and I want to I do that on our side. Uh, Pamela, we've only got a couple minutes left, so I'm going to have you pull this together as only you can. <laughs> let me let me wrap this up, Greg. When you were talking about chefs, you know, going from one city to the next, you know, getting funding, the first thing that came to my mind was what we're watching right here with the NFL. So I have to give a nod because Billy knows what a huge sports fan I am. But let me just say this about the two of you and what you are doing. The part that just swelled and filled my heart so much when I met you at Bay Haven, not just your commitment and your your passion for your craft and the business, but you are also exemplary Black love. And that is something that I want to just celebrate here for one little moment listening to Greg talk about his wife and listening to Sabrina talk about her husband and the two of you are doing this together. So you're trailblazing in ways that has historically been true for black families. What we've done together, couples and marriages and families, you all are bringing that back in such a beautiful way and just exemplifying it in such a beautiful way. But also the fact that you're willing to talk about it's hard, it's a struggle, but that's all right. We're going to keep pushing through. We're going to keep setting the example. We're going to keep bringing others along with us because that's the way we make change. And I can't tell you how proud we are at Share Our Strength to have this incredible relationship with you, but more so to be able to use this example you all have set forth. So every single child that we talk to, that we engage with about making sure they know hunger is temporary, hunger is a solvable problem, and we have a beautiful Black couple that can show you this is real and there's a way to make this happen. So I want to thank you all for this time you've given to us today, for your story that you shared with us today, that you've got Bay Haven and it's coming back and you know I will be front and center invitation or not, cheering for you 100%. And um, just can't wait to see what you all keep doing and what's coming next. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Um, we thank you guys for having us. And we just, you know, we hope to talk again in another year or so. And, you know, we've done something else or it just kept going the way we're going. So we really appreciate y'all having us. Well, we will have to catch up again. This has been a great conversation. And uh, I, I don't think any of us can say it better than Pamela did. So we will leave it right there. We're so grateful for you and so inspired by your leadership. We've been talking to Sabrina and Greg Collier uh, from Charlotte. 
North Carolina culinary leaders uh, and leaders not only in the culinary community, but in the field of economic empowerment, especially for black Americans. So if you want to learn more about Greg and Sabrina Collier, the Bayhaven Food and Wine Festival, and the other voices that we featured in our Rebuilding series, please visit adpassionandstir.com. At our website, you'll find more Ad Passion and Stir episodes featuring leaders from education, like Center for Black Educator Development founder Sharif Almecki and former D.C. Public Schools Chancellor Kaya Henderson, along with voices from media like High on the Hog creator Stephen Satterfield and BET founder Sheila Johnson. And if you like this episode, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, share it with a friend, or rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woodle's team at District Productive and Joanna Weber of Pop and Awe, with support from our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Debbie Shore, Pamela Taylor, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories of individuals sharing their strength to make a difference in the world. Until then, thanks so much for listening.